Welcome to Shelter. in solidarity, a deep dive with artists and activists during this COVID pandemic. I'm your host, Joe Ramsey, live streaming, Zooming, YouTubing with you here from Dorchester, Massachusetts on the south side of Boston. This is our officially our 30th episode of Shelter and Solidarity, a project that a year ago this time uh, in December of 2019 wasn't even a twinkle in anyone's eye. We had no idea this would be happening as we had no idea what 2020 would look and feel like. What a year it has been. Here we are on December 17th. This is our final episode of Shelter and Solidarity for the year Though we will be coming back with a brand new show for you in 2021 in January. More about that later. But this is our closeout show for 2020 and we have assembled today a terrific group, a round table of community activists, organizers, scholars, educators, and artists to share with us reflections on the year that we have just about got through at this point, though we got a little more than a week to go, uh, as well as prospects and, and observations, things they want to highlight regarding the year ahead. We look back to 2020 on 2020. We look ahead into 2021. 2020, of course, has been a crazy year in so many, in so many ways, in ways that are endemic as well as ways that are directly related to the pandemic. Uh, it has been a, a year of, of COVID-19, of enforced quarantine, enforced sheltering in place, giving us the title of this show, Shelter and Solidarity. It has been a year of mass protest and rebellion. It, is a, it has been a year of drastic economic crisis and cutbacks, um, intense conflicts and fears around education and many other institutions in our society. Uh, we are, I'm so glad today to have with us um, a great panel that can do some justice to the issues that, that we and that the broader communities and humanity faces. Uh, we have Barbara Mataloni, Avi Chomsky, Demetrius Noble, Raymond Nat Turner, Ben Mansky, Bobby Lee Smart, and we may be joined by Victor Naro a little bit later in the program as well. Uh, all of these folks have common, perhaps more than one thing, as, as their remarks may uh, reveal. But what, they have one thing in common, they've all been on Shelter and Solidarity before, most of you I think at least twice. So back by popular demand, back by producers, uh, reception. We are so glad to have you all here. And let's just maybe before we go to individuals for comments, just love to say hello to you. And maybe if you uh, just say hello back, we can see your face on the Zoom. As we know on Zoom here, you can only be seen when you are heard. And likewise, for our guests who are listening in at this point, you can be seen when you are heard. So do please keep yourself muted until we get to the point in the discussion when we will welcome you in and we will get there as we always do here on Shelter and Solidarity. Welcome back, Dream Team. Glad to be back. Hi. All right. Well, D, you're the one I could hear there, so I'm going to go right back to you, back to you, Demetrius Noble. You bravely agreed to um, to go first or to help us kick off um, this uh, this kind of you know Herculean task in some ways of of trying to sum up in two or three minutes. I asked every guest in two or three minutes to try to articulate um, a reflection, a lesson, a takeaway or two from 2020. Um, let's go to you, uh, Demetrius, to kick it off, and then we'll go to Avi Chomsky, and then after that, we'll uh, leave it to, to spontaneous impulse here. 
uh, D, what do you take away from this 2020 year? We are just about wrapped. Yeah, so thanks for having me again, Joe, um, and uh, inviting me to kind of comment on 2020, uh, the year that was, is. Um, and while it's impossible to kind of sum it all up in two to three minutes, there are a few things that particularly stood out to me as really important um, for us to consider as meaningful takeaways as we look forward um, into 2021. One thing um, that I just want to kind of anchor my thoughts on that you already had mentioned was that it was an incredible year of protests and mass resistance um, that we saw. And while that is certainly not um, unique uh, to 2020, we, you know, we saw it, uh, you know, over the last uh, five to seven years um, as responses um, to state violence, racist police brutality. One thing that I think that was really unique about 2020 and the spontaneous rebellions um, that emerged was the way that it was able to gain traction off of previous rebellions and the way that uh, we, what we saw with 2020, I think really just kind of, at least for me, escalated um, and invigorated the hopes um, that struggle could have. One thing that I thought that was just beautiful when you see uh, the cities ablaze, the people out in the streets, were um, these were multiracial, intergenerational struggles. Um, for one of the first times, I think, while it was clear that folks were out there to protest and mobilize against racist state violence, I saw with the clarity that I don't think that I've seen, at least not in, in wide scope as it was for 2020, people's ability to connect struggles in really powerful and meaningful ways. So while folks were there to certainly protest against uh, racist state violence, we saw the connective tissue and tentacles to other movements like Me Too, environmental justice, um, education reform. Um, and, and the way that this year was able to make things that really seemed before that will only be heard on venues and forums like this, were able to push things like uh, abolition, right? <laughs> and, 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 to, and, and forcing it to be mainstream discourse, uh, so much so that during the primaries and, and, and the presidential debates that folks had to take up notions of abolition and defunding the police as really serious, legitimate ideas to wrestle with in this age of neoliberalism and austerity. And I think that's a really meaningful thing that we have to uh, continue to attempt to build upon. Another thing that I wanna say quickly that I was really inspired by in 2020 was the amount of protest at the point of production. So we saw an incredible amount of resistance in the streets um, as a response to um, state violence, but the pandemic highlighted uh, so many contradictions of capital and through those things in a sharp relief. And it was really powerful to see workers mobilize and organize at the point of production. There were sanitation strikes in multiple cities. Uh, you saw nurses go on strikes for things to PPE. There were strikes at, uh, uh, at food and meatpacking factories. Um, a series of, of really militant um, organizing going on at Amazon warehouses all over the country. So the way that you saw the rebel, the spontaneous rebellions in the streets encourage workers at the point of production to stand up for themselves, 
um, inspired and invigorated by what was happening in the street and then take that to the point of production to, to demand more from employers, uh, whether it be for uh, hazard pay or basic PPEs, like that was really inspiring as well. And I just um, saw uh, this morning where in Long Beach, California, grocery store workers have won hazard pay. So, I mean, that's amazing. They, they've won hazard pay and, it, and, it, and it's gonna be paid, I think, uh, for the next several months in advance. I would like to see them continue organizing to get that and be made retroactively. So, I mean, but th that was another thing that was really powerful for me as well is the organizing at the point of production. Um, and lastly, one thing that I just wanna um, end with, cause I don't, I don't want a short time clock. Another thing that was incredibly powerful for me was ways in which organizing activism and resistance brought people together. So you saw, you know, the, the title of the show is Shelter and Solidarity. And while people are in quarantine, people are locked up in their homes, it was actual organizing and resisting the forces of dehumanization that provided the connective tissue to humanize people, to bring people together, whether they joined out in the streets in real life or in ven venues like this. I can't tell you how many Zoom calls and, and things that I've been a, a part of all throughout the year where folks were able to feel that connectivity for a meaningful higher purpose. So that was really powerful to me that uh, against all the crushing dehumanizing forces, it was actually resisting and organizing and activism that, that reminded us that we are human and, and we're providing that bridge for us to come together again. So quickly, those are just some things that got me really excited in terms of thinking back about what happened in 2020 and what are things that we should look to take forward Wilderson continue to build upon. Thank you, Demetrius, for that great opening comment. You went a little long, but you know what? It was worth it. <laughs> I'm I sorry. Think else can go. No, it's, no it's, it's not. I mean, you actually covered a tremendous amount of material, material or issues. You flagged a lot of issues within, within just a few minutes. So thank you so much for that great kickoff. Avi, we'll go next to you. Um, and, um, you know, building on Demetrius's comments with your own reflections. What is 2020 meant? What stands out to you that you want to highlight as, as we near the end of it? Um, so I have to say, I'm really grateful that Demetrius talked about all of those things, which are so important to talk about and left me uh, to talk about some more depressing things, <laughs> not to, um, not to counter or challenge because that really is the story. Um, but somehow, thinking about what I was gonna talk about tonight, I came up with a more depressing story, um, which is also part of the story. Um, so I started 2020 working on, uh, on sabbatical, working on a book about climate change. And when I say I'm working on a book about climate change, I have to always qualify by saying, I'm not a scientist. I'm not writing about the science of climate change. Um, I'm thinking about silent climate change from a social and historical perspective. I'm a historian. Um, and to me, what I, the story that I felt needed to be told that I am capable of telling, not the science story, many people have told that much better than I ever could, um, is both the environmental justice aspect of climate change, um, who causes it, who it, and how and why, um, and how our entire economic system and model of economic development and capitalism and um, economic growth um, 
are the cause of climate change. That is, of course, we can look from a scientific point of view and talk about the causes of climate change and fossil fuel emissions, but that doesn't answer the question of why have we as human societies created this system and how can we change it? So part of the argument in my book is that science of course, we've been sort of pushed into this position of, oh, well, we have to follow the science, we have to believe the science, because we have been uh, confronted with so much deni science denialism, and that pushes us on the left into, into this pro-science position. But when we, when we limit ourselves to, we have to follow the science, and science is going to give us the solution, we're not talking about the social aspects, which is what, socioeconomic aspects, which is what we should be talking about. Um, and just over the last few days, I've been thinking a lot about uh, the pandemic and how we've seen sort of a similar kind of process where um, because out of the mainstream, we're getting so much denialism, um, we find ourselves on the left reduced to, oh, you should wear a mask. <laughs> Follow the science. We want to believe the science. Um, and especially in the last few days with all of the celebratory uh, celebratory uh, news that's coming out about the vaccine and how thrilled everyone is that science is saving us, um, that I feel is also just missing the story about the pandemic, which is really a very similar story to the story about climate change. So I just added a section of my book, what do climate change and pandemics have in common, um, both in terms of their impact and the way they reveal and exacerbate the fault lines, the socioeconomic um, fault lines in our society, um, and in terms of their causes. That is uh, our system of agribusiness that is uh, destroying uh, the remaining wood forested areas of the world pushing uh, uh, CAFOs, uh, concentrated uh, animal feeding operations, uh, putting animals all together. That is basically it's corporate agribusiness that is setting the groundwork and is the reason that pandemics are emerging one after another. And to celebrate the scientists who come in to try to mop up the damage that's done by capitalism. Well, yes, we need a vaccine. Obviously I'm thrilled that there's a vaccine too, but we shouldn't let that divert us from looking at what, what kind of society have we created that is making these things happen rather than just how can science help us get out of them? So um, that's, that's what I've been thinking about as the year comes to an end. Yeah, Avi, that, thank you so much for that. I mean, many things stand out from what you just said, and I'm just, but I just want to highlight one. I mean, your last comment also made me recall that famous, uh, it's almost like a prose poem, uh, but I'm not going to be able to conjure it, but, and I'm not going to be able to quote it accurately, but it's along the lines of, you know, when I, when I served the, when I gave food to the poor, you know, they, they called me a, a saint, but when I asked why there were poor, they called me a communist. And I feel like, you know, it's a little bit like that today. It's kind of like when I, when I, when I was the great emergency responder, you know, they called me a hero, you know, but when I asked, why do we have these emergencies? And that you know, was um, right. the Brazilian it, liberation theologian, Domelder Camara. There you go. That Thank comment. you very much. But it seems like, I mean, we do have, we are caught, right? It's like endless praise for certain workers, certain front, you know what I mean? Certain, right. Which is great. It, it, but, but, but to what degree it, it's like it's like only the the people out the fires will get on TV, but not 
not the not the people be working to try to prevent the fires in the first place. Thank you for that, Avi. We're going to go to Bobby Lee Smart. Bobby Lee Smart, who's uh, joining us back on Shelter and Solidarity, having co-hosted past episodes. It's so great to see you, Bobby Lee. And actually, I was one of my producers suggested to me if everyone could kind of locate themselves a little bit, just so folks who don't know you already have a sense of where you're hailing from. And next time you get a chance to speak, those of you who already spoke don't need to do it now. But Bobby Lee, uh, how's it going out in Cali? Um, it's good. It's good. Long Beach is about 15 minutes from me. So I hadn't heard about that strike. So when you said it, I was like, oh, well, I, you know, didn't know, but that's, yeah, real close to me. Um, I'm in Southern California. And so um, things are good. It's overcast. There might be water coming from the sky. Uh, I don't know if you know this about those of us who are native Southern Californians, but we are descendants of the Wicked Witch of the West. And so we melt in the rain. So I'm not sure how we're going to survive. I'm glad we're all locked in the house, to be honest, because we don't know how to drive and we don't know how to function when it's wet out. Um, but, you know, things are good. I've kind of been reflecting. It's been personally, it's been quite a year for me. I've gone through a lot. I'm also, um, so I'm a contingent faculty member, adjunct faculty member, part-time faculty member, non-tenure, whatever word you want to use for us. Um, I'm not full-time. I don't have benefits and I'm exploited. Um, that's what I do for work. And so um, it's today I had my last class with my students and also being here with you all today. And it's weird and I'm having a lot of weird feelings about it because I don't know these students personally. I haven't met them in person. Most of them have never turned their camera off until today when they all started turning them on and I almost started crying because I finally got to see their faces um, because I wouldn't know them. Like if I passed them on the street, I would not know these people ever, right? And they probably wouldn't know me because I am four foot 11. They would look right over me. They didn't even realize I was that little. So they were like, what? Um, and today was the first day they seen me with full makeup and my hair down and I did it for you all. Um, but normally it's up and a bun and, you know, and they're like, okay, whatever. So it's, it's a very weird space to be, but I also have realized that without this, like before this, if you were going to call me to video chat, you had to warn me so I could put my face on, get my life together, make sure I was, you know, like you couldn't just call me now. I'm like, and you get what you get. You call me, you can see whatever you see. And I think that it's made me feel a different type of connection. Like you all are all over the world, but Joe's one of my favorite people. And Linda, and like, I feel very connected to you as connected as I do to my coworkers that I saw physically in person. So I think I'm learning to embrace technology a little more in this way. Um, the video chat and what it's able to do. Um, it's bad. It's not great, but I think that I, didn't expect it to be as good as it was, right? And so watching my students success, like excel and succeed in spite of everything we're going through has been really nice because I was terrified. And I do know that a lot of students um, are not re-enrolling because they aren't having good experiences. And we are seeing declining enrollment in the community college system because that's the system I teach in. So everyone was like, oh no, people are gonna come back to work. It's a pandemic. And I was like, with online teaching, with three hour Zoom lectures. They're not coming back to this, like they're leaving us. And so people kept thinking it was gonna be like any other recession, any other depression, and it's not. And unfortunately I'm being proved right. I think I said this way back in March and April, be warned, it's not gonna be like that. They're not gonna to come to us. And so unfortunately adjunct faculty, part-time faculty, we're gonna be the first ones to go. Um, and we're the most exploited as it is. And so you're gonna see that. I don't know what this means for higher education in the future. Um, but so it was nice to have that positive connection with them. Um, and yeah, I don't wanna take too, too much more time, but I did wanna go back. Um, I'm just gonna, I don't know your first name. I'm sorry. I just see D Noble on my screen. Um, so I don't know if that's what you want me to call you. Demetrius um, Noble. Demetrius, thank you. Um, I did not catch, I just was like, I don't know the first name. Um, 
was that we were actually forced to pay attention to what was happening in the world because you couldn't go outside. There were no sports. There wasn't, you had to actually watch what was happening in the world. And so I think that that also contributed to what we see. And I'm teaching high school seniors. I'm teaching a dual enrollment. And so having high school seniors who are engaged, who are critical, taking a sociology class and understand, like breaking it down, I'm like, oh, y'all get it because they're seeing it in a different way. Um, so I think there's there has been a lot of negative, but I think that there's been a lot of positive. And I think we're gonna see some positive social change from this um, because people are engaged in a different way. Yeah. Really interesting comments, Bobby Lee. I mean, you, you, in some sense you, you captured like the, the contradictory sides of this technology so many of us have been dwelling in. On the one hand, right, you just said Demetrius like just told you through Zoom via wherever this thing's routed, via Boston, via, North Carolina, you found out about a strike that happened up the street, right? But but on the other hand, like your students might walk by you on the street, right? Because they don't know actually what you look like except for your your you know your your head, right? I mean, I have no idea what heights you know uh, side views of my students look like either. I think it's the first semester where I might actually walk by a student on the street and not even know they were my student. Uh, thankfully, not most students, but 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 some. So it is is very sobering. Uh, full of dangers and opportunities. All right, let's go to Ben Mansky, and then after that, we're going to go to Barbara Mattaloni. Ben, welcome back. To Shelter it's and good to be here. back here with you, and uh, I'm uh, a new member of the faculty in sociology here at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia, um, and frankly, in terms of checking in, I'm completely exhausted, and it's not just that today is the last day to file grades, so I'll be doing that right after uh, we're done here, um, and uh, it's not, um, it's not just that it's the end of Hanukkah and the beginning of another season. We got three little boys who've been stuck at home with us and just had their first snow because they were born in California and moved out here with us in August. Um, uh, and it's not just that, um, you know, I began the year as a graduate student worker at the University of California, Santa Barbara, uh, preparing for our joining the Wildcat strike that we were able to build out of Santa Cruz to Santa Barbara through the entire UC system. Um, and then to see that strike get broken by the pandemic and the way in which administration management was able to um, take advantage of another crisis. Um, it's also that um, I'm not just looking back on the last year, I'm looking back on the last 30 years. Um, and I've been struggling over the past year with the question of whether we are um, operating largely in the same period with the same logics of the past 30 years, the period that began with the uh, end of the um, Soviet bloc with the you know democracy revolutions of the late 80s, early 90s, the end of apartheid, uh, with the declaration of war on the Mexican state and on NAFTA, uh, led by the uh, Zapatista Army of National Liberation. That's a uh, beginning of a period. Um, uh, or you know was are we in a new sort of Trump era with new logics? Um, and uh, and there are new logics and there are new dimensions to movements and and practices that we're seeing that are promising in many respects. And there's probably some practices that we've lost. Um, but I'm now at the point where I think, okay, we're in the same period. <laughs> Again, I go back and forth on this and then we have been oscillating in the last 30 years between um, uh, you know, struggles under neoliberal authoritarian regimes and what we used to call neoconservative authoritarian regimes, uh, more you know, explicit in your face authoritarianism uh, we're about to go back into a neoliberal regime in this country. Um, and um, and with each sort of period or each sub-period, we uh, end up with a more intense period uh, sort of struggle, right? So I have the Wisconsin uprising behind me. I'm from Wisconsin originally, largely my home. 
10 years ago, February 14th was when the Wisconsin uprising began. Prefigured Occupy was going on at the same time as Arab Spring. Um, I was in the streets of Seattle 21 years ago um, this past month. Um, you know, it's been a long struggle. And what I am seeing now looking ahead, and I'll end with this, is that um, I think the next 10 years are going to be the decisive period. You know, this is the revolutionary period. This is do or die. Um, and uh, while I'm exhausted, uh, I am also motivated by this sense of necessity. So I'm focused on helping my students, my comrades, um, people I care about to prepare for the next 10 years, especially the next five. We got to win this thing. Well said, Ben. And thank you, Ben, and all of you for being here. Uh, as many of us are, have, are facing the end of a semester, we're all facing the end of a long year. Here in the Northeast, we've been clobbered by a winter storm. Um, you know, we're really sheltering now uh, when, when winter hits on top of the pandemic. Uh, thank you all for being here and, um, and sharing these insights. Barbara Mataloni. How does 2020 look to you and, and what are you drawing from it as we as we near the start of the next year? Hi, Joe. Um, hi, all. I, I'm really grateful to be on here tonight. Uh, as a, listening to you all reflect is helping me reflect uh, as well and important for for all of us to reflect as we're going to look forward. Um, so just uh, I'm with Labor Notes right now and uh, most of my work, a great uh, deal of my work is with uh, public education, uh, pre-K through higher ed. And I work really closely uh, with uh, sort of caucuses and pre-caucuses in education unions, pre-K through and in higher ed, uh, really looking to build rank and file democratic, transparent unions, militant unions, uh, based on uh, the understanding that it's through workers uh, knowing and using their collective power that we will be able to transform the world and get the world we want. And I say that um, at a moment when I've really been struggling with, uh, through this year with uh, recognizing the tremendous gulf between the world we want and the power that we're gonna need to win that world and our capacity at this point as workers uh, to organize for that power. Uh, and, you know, as we entered the pandemic, uh, I allowed myself or part of myself to be somewhat uh, sort of diluted by the possibilities of the crisis. Uh, it seemed that the pandemic created, and then with the Black Liberation Movement, like just such a sense of like, uh, unified understanding of what was happening to us and, uni and unified demands. Um, but it's been difficult working uh, in public education right now, you know, in higher ed, which is really, public higher ed is uh, under like the most intense threat. Uh, they've just, you know, it is shock doctrine. Uh, like we haven't seen except like in New Orleans uh, for K-12. Um, and we're not ready. Uh, labor is, workers are not ready uh, at this point. And I've, I've really been, like, I don't want that to be true. So I go back and forth with that. Uh, but where I've landed, um, 
because I get to do work with lots and lots of educators from across the country uh, who have come to understand that like the that we still have to do the foundational work. And they are they're out there like every day having conversations, uh, worker to worker, uh, identifying the structures of power, uh, organizing collectively with a real, with a deep commitment uh, to democracy, like real democracy, uh, with a deep commitment uh, to a vision for a better world, uh, to the common good. And, and they are in those organizing moments, I think uh, building the really deep foundation that we're gonna need as we face the 10 years that Ben just mentioned. Uh, that we can't do this work, uh, you know, the, the note I wrote to myself is like, we have to dry the wood. We can't just call for a conflagration. Uh, and, and there's lots of calls for conflagration because it feels like we need it, right? Like we need it to shift now because we're in such danger. Uh, but we, we, we can't shift it without sort of centering our work in our relationships in building the trust in a shared analysis and a shared experience of using our collective power. And that's, um, that's where I keep landing in a way that I find is really sustaining, uh, even though it disappoints some people because I'm not saying, yeah, we're gonna win the new world next year, or we can plan to win the new world if we just get the right program. Uh, but I feel like it's sustaining and it is, I, I am learning again and again that we're like, we are building the new world in the very way we come together, organize and fight. Uh, so that's where I am looking back and, and looking forward. Yeah, thank you so much for that, Barbara. I mean, as you mentioned, we're, we need to dry the wood before we, or, you know, in order to make a conflagration possible, we need to chop it too, right? I mean, you know, I mean, we've probably lots of work to be done I think it's a really, um, I mean, a powerful one thing that stands out from your comment is uh, not only registering that that gulf between the desire that so many have articulated for a different world and, and the work, you know, and, and where we're at right now in capacity, but that, you you know, you don't give up on the, the radical change just because there is so much work in front of us. I mean, keeping both, both poles in play visible, I think, are, are so crucial, but you properly uh, bring us back down to earth uh, by thinking about the all the all the muscle building work we need to do to have that power. Um, I'd like to bring in next uh, Raymond Nat Turner, uh, if he's ready to prepare. I see him jotting notes there. Perhaps respond, re ready to respond. I'd like to go to Raymond, and then we'll go to Victor Naro, um, and then we'll we'll come around for another round of comments and responses from folks. And also, perhaps uh, I'd love to. You know, we have some previous guests on the on the on the call as well. Victor Wallace and. Uh, and uh, John Lawrence has been on the call as well. I think he may have just hopped off, but previous guests of the show, I'd love to welcome you in sooner rather than later as well. But first to Raymond. Raymond, welcome back. Make sure Thank to you. unmute yourself, there you go. Yes, I'm unmuted now. Um, <clears throat> firstly, thank you for having me back. And um, uh, it's a real honor and pleasure to be amongst such uh, stellar individuals. Um, I agree with, uh, I would co-sign for m much of the commentary that's been made. 
Uh, I would just add or tease out uh, a little something Barbara said. Um, I, I totally agree that our forces uh, need to bulk up a bit. Um, at the same time, a, the, it's an objective uh, rhythm that struggles have and you know, we may be forced into the struggle at a very high level much quicker than we could prepare for, which, which I think may be the case. And um, I'm sort of reminded of the uh, film Glory, the Fighting 54th of Massachusetts, uh, where a ragtag bunch of formerly enslaved Africans, and uh, they became a superb fighting force in a relatively short period of time. So that can also happen. So I'm just adding that. Um, having said all that, I think the the commentary has been great. I want I want to go in a different direction. I'm I'm if nothing else, I'm an artist. That's all. That's my thing. I'm an artist. Uh, so I, I have these two short pieces I like to do that speak to my take on what we're facing. And the first is called Pusher Men. I turn my head away too high. Helpless tears watching you shoot up in voting booths every four years. I've watched you melt Slick Willie saxophone and shades down in your cooker and inject the image into your vein. I've watched you nod out for eight years after shooting the Drone Rangers high fructose corn syrup slogans Si se puede, yes, we can, and bottle Jim Jones juice for regime change we can believe in. And yes, I've watched you happy dance on ice like a lap dancer hanging from his warhead. Powerless, I've averted my eyes from the gore lining your arm. I know the needle's power over you. It's power to carry you away. I saw you sell Palestinian, Afghan, Pakistani, Iraqi, Libyan, and Somali babies for your fix. And ashamed, I distanced myself from you and your addiction. Now, old black schmo and lady blue are tying you off with dark winter. And I know the needles power over you. But this time, I promise not to abandon you, not to give up on you. I promise to try and try and try to get you help, a 12-step program 
where all you have to lose is your chains. And then power of the people. You didn't wait for decades of debate, morphing cries from the streets into talk in the suite, so-called quarters of power, way out of tune, out of sync, with at odds with needs of the people. No, you pull neighbors from Katrina's oily lament, her toxic tears to tables where water waited with food without obstacles, stumbling blocks, smoke screens from long-winded ones. You pull down slavers' syphilitic statues in days without waiting in decades of soft brown piles of politicians' promises. You rid innocent poles of bloody rags in merely minutes without waiting on gas bags, huffing and puffing in talk shops till the wee hours. You made racist mascots go bye-bye without white supremacist justices, sleazy senators or corrupt Congress members in corporate war paint mixed from the alcohol protocol and geritol fueling capitalist hill. You got Blue Klux Klansmen arrested, charged, or fired without weaponized words, stun gun sermons, rubber bullet eulogies the bought, of the bought and bossed. You mostly unshackled our imaginations, freed our dreams, and bought us a tiny bit of time and an ounce of hope at a very, very high price on the black market. Yeah, Raymond Nat Turner, folks, back again for the second straight show and you just heard a little sample why. Raymond, um, thank you so much for that. Both of those poems, um, Pusherman, and power of the people, right? And what, one thing I heard there, right, in both of them was a very scathing indictment of the political class, shall we say, right? And, mm -hmm. and, and, and an insistence on the way in which looking to that class of people for the solutions here can be, can be likened to a drug, an unhealthy, destructive drug addiction. And what you did with that theme, I think, is, is, is brilliant and powerful. But I mean, that I think raises a very important question for our discussion tonight as well, which would be what are, to what degree electoral politics uh, and, and politics of that sort factors into our, you know, uh, our pol political vision and strategy looking forward. And to what degree is that, does it function, does that, does that sort of politics actually factor as an obstacle, right? Uh, as an obstacle, as a danger, as a lure that actually can distract us from the kind of work that can be, and as Raymond reminds us, has been done by the people in a more direct fashion. Uh, so Raymond, thank you so much for that. I, I hope we can circle back to you in a few minutes. Our last invited guest for the moment before we open things up for a round two and maybe some new voices as well is Victor Naro. Victor Naro, thank you so much for coming back today with us. And uh, we're looking forward to hearing your thoughts on the, the year behind us and the year ahead. 
Okay, well, th thank you so much. I so appreciate the space and uh, feel uncomfortable coming after a great poet, but I'll do my best. Um, so uh, my name is Victor Nardo. I work in Los Angeles. Um, I am one of those, uh, I guess, that uh, guest worker faculty at UCLA. I actually submitted my paperwork for my, uh, I have to be reappointed every two years at UCLA as part of my work with the Labor Center. Um, I totally support those of you that are teaching, working with students, but I also support the guests. Uh, you know, non-tenure faculty are struggling today and we have a lot of good unions fighting for our rights and we just gotta stay together and like, transform uh, academia. Um, but uh, I think one of the things I, the two things I uh, really have been transformed uh, during the pandemic. The, the first one is, you know, um, my students have become my point of transformation. So I actually end up thanking my students more than they thank me when I when I have the opportunity to teach classes. Um, I just feel every class there's powerful engagement, and I learn so much from the students. But then that leads me to my next point is, I think uh, the older generation of activists like myself, like I'm not that far away from 60, and we just need to move out of the way and really allow the the younger activism to flourish because they really have been making a difference in so many ways. In Los Angeles, um, I really became very connected with new forms of organizing. Um, you know, Black Lives Matter joined with DSA LA, but then Ground Game LA, the People's City Council, and also um, Street LA, they all ran anti-establishment candidates and I joined them. I, I, to the to the dismay of my friends in the labor movement, because we had the labor movement and the Democratic Party supporting incumbents in City Hall and LA County. We together ran two anti-establishment uh, candidates and they kicked ass. <laughs> they won hands down, they got reelected. I mean, they got they won elections, they beat the uh, established uh, incumbents. And now we have a champion in City Hall, uh, Nithya Raman, the first South uh, Asian woman in City Council who's gonna lead a progressive agenda. I think she's she's the beginning because now we're looking at other candidates to run against other incumbents. And then we got Holly Mitchell, an LA uh, County Board of Supervisors who defeated uh, somebody who was really heavily supported by pretty much the entire Democratic Party, all the labor unions and most uh, civil rights organizations. I think, uh, you know, we don't have to always rely on the Democratic Party and, and the establishment to to be there for us, because I think that's one thing we're learning from this pandemic, and that's one thing young activists are making me realize is that there was no safety net. We didn't eliminate racism. We gain, we made gains, but have we dismantled the evils that keep breeding the injustices, and they've been exposed a lot by the pandemic. And I'm grateful that we scored a victory in the White House. And my, my hope is we get the Georgia comes away so we at least get some control of the Senate. But keep in mind, like what I'm learning from younger activists is to, you know, you know, um, there's not always expect the establishment to be there for us. And the stimulus package is gonna be debated this week as an example. It's gonna to lead to outcomes, but at the end of the day, nobody's gonna get the checks, that, the resources that they need to survive. Um, and it's gonna scale back a lot of what we need to fully 
uh, give it the deep um, suffering that's happening on this pandemic. And all out of it is really crumbs unless we push hard. And we got to push hard for what we need economic justice to uh, true racial justice, racial equity in this country. So it's good that we're turning the tides, Congress. But at the end of the day, can, uh, should we always rely on the establishment to be there for us? And I think that's what I'm learning with this new form of activism that's happening. That's been my point of transformation, really. Um, and I've more like stepping out of the way and getting these young activists weighed because I'm being I'm seeing some good outcomes with these new forms of organizing. Yeah, thank you, Victor. Uh, thank you. Uh, I mean, you. You raise a number of important issues. I mean, one is the the question of intergenerational exchange and intergenerational uh, relations uh, within and around the movements. To, you know, uh, to what degree are the the new forms that are emerging uh, need to be kind of you know allowed to step forward and not obstructed by older forms or older form founts of wisdom? And what degree do these folks and these movements still, you know, need, or if they're not already in dialogue with previous forms and, and veterans of the movement, uh, such as yourself. Um, also, you raised the question of, of how we should relate to the establishment. I mean, again, you, you both register skepticism about if it's possible to win more than crumbs, even if you get the congressional, you know, delegation that you want. At the other hand, you talk about the, the possibility of running anti-establishment campaigns electorally and at the local level in the Los Angeles area. So, I mean, I think I'd, I mean, one question that I'd love to put back to our great group here, maybe to Demetrius and then Avi, is we, if we keep to the order that we began, unless folks want to jump in, feel free to, if you, if you do, let me know, um, is, you know, uh, what, what, how do you relate to these two questions? I mean, there's a generational question, um, you know, and, and what you see, we all have students, I mean, you both have students, um, I'd be interested in, in you stepping into that aspect of Victor's um, kind of comments, as well as this question of the establishment, which, which I think Raymond and Victor have both highlighted quite sharply in, in different ways, and how you conceive of your work or our work uh, in relationship to existing establishment powers versus uh, perhaps the project, or maybe it's not versus, maybe, maybe that's not the adjective that, or the, the preposition or whatever you would want to use. Um, you know, and how that relates the 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 building of new organization and, and new power that I think everyone on this call probably agrees we we need to build. Demetrius? Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate this question. I think it's uh, an incredibly important one uh, for us to to think through, to wrestle with. Uh, we can develop, we can the right type of analysis for how we need to to push forward. Um, <clears throat> I guess to start with the the first thing about in terms of this new uh, unleashing of energy and all these folks that have activated um, into struggle. Um, to me, that's that's been one really powerful. Uh, to witness over the course of 20. So I'm located um, in Greensboro, North Carolina. Um, but here in Greensboro, where we do have um, a good, rich foundation activists and organizers, you know, over the course of 2020, we were just uh, met <laughs> with new folks that were activated. Um, you know, by by the events of um <clears throat> of 2020 and 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 in, and in previous years, that brought a lot of new fresh insights and energy, 
uh, into the struggle. So I think that, uh, and as Victor uh, mentioned, deferring to that, you know, and allowing them an opportunity to, um, to, to, to lead and cut their teeth and struggle uh, is really important. And one thing that I think grew out of it in one of his poems, they help unshackle our imaginations. Like we begin to see what new types of things um, are possible, what new strategy um, are capable of winning? What new visions do we do we need to embrace? And I think that's that's really important. Uh, we don't we shouldn't we don't own a monopoly, you know, on how to struggle on on theory. These are things these are things that are kind of have to be uh, updated, um, you know, as, as we go through the struggle. So I really appreciate Victor saying that and Raymond highlighting that in his poem on unshackling our imagination. I wrote that down. I think that's really important. Concerning the second question of like. How do we connect um, to the establishment? I think for all the reasons that um, that Raymond and Victor highlighted, you know, we have we're we're right to have very principled uh, critiques about the limitations of uh, capitalist democracy and knowing that we can work and scratch and push and only get a little bit. But organizing in that space, I think, is very important because inviting people to organize, to mobilize in that space is one of the best ways to show the limitations and contradictions of the capitalist state. You know, so I think you have to actively engage it, confront it to know how fucked up and limited and narrow it is, as opposed to just standing on the outside, always throwing rocks. So I love the idea of trying to run anti-establishment candidates. These are practical ways to get people informed on public policy, what the things uh, we're, we're up against, how to fight it, and then actually how limited the wins can be within such campaigns, which I think when once people really get entrenched in those struggles, it, el it helps to help uh, inspire and broaden their horizon, push them to more leftist, more revolutionary uh, conclusion. So I think it's a great kind of a, it's a great organizing practical um, thing to work through. Something I was used to be very skeptical and against until until act, actually doing it and, 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 and learning more. And I think uh, lots of good um, organizers and activists are groomed in those types of uh, fights. And I think it's important to, to not forfeit that to actually engage and fight yeah, there. Yeah, I mean, I loved how you put it, right? You need to engage it in order to expose it in to some degree, right? Or, I mean, or at least that that is a key way. For some folks, it's going to take that, not just a theoretical treatise or something like that, right? To, to show the limits of, of the existing structure. And in some ways, I hear a connection here to Barbara's earlier comment as well, right? In terms of that, right? Between at least you know, the kind of visions that at least a certain sector of the society, maybe a growing one, maybe growing, especially among young folks, but growing in general, perhaps, right? People that are looking for transformative systemic change on some level, on whatever issue they, they focus on, they realize it may be around climate change or, you know, or something like that, if they don't re realize it in other terms. Um, but the need to actually, you can't just always leap to the thing that you desire, or at least you might be able to, but is your neighbor ready to go there with you too? How can we, how can we make it build the base to actually have the revolutionary transformative movement that's not just going to get slaughtered, right? That has enough of a mass barely be a material force. Uh, Avi, there's a lot on the table here. Um, I'm welcome you to step into uh, to this to this mix or to, or to redirect us. After all, we have this year and next year to sum up and there's a lot of open field. After that, we'll... Um. So I was thinking about the generational question too, and um, 
especially in the form of my students. And I guess I, I see real challenges, um, but also real hope. Um, I feel like this was an extraordinarily difficult year for my students. Um, you know, I teach at a public regional university. So um, most of my students are working class, first generation college students. And most of them had a really, really year. Um, many of them work frontline um, essential jobs. All of them work. Um, many of them were dealing with COVID in their close family members or themselves. Um, most of them are really scared about debt and their uh, and what it would mean if they lose their jobs and want to go to college. Um, and just on every level, um, I feel like I practically left every class in tears after hearing what my students were struggling with day by day. Um, so on one hand, I think that that creates a lot of potential revolutionary mobilization, a lot of potential for just sinking into um, one's own individual struggle and not, not having the mental bandwidth to even think beyond that. So I feel like students are really, and most of my students, I would say, come to college, never having been exposed to anything outside of mainstream analysis, whether they're getting it from their classrooms or from the, you know, the way news and politics to them. Um, so, so I feel like a lot of my job as a teacher is to um, provide that kind of analysis that, that allows students to understand their struggles as part of a social reality um, that be critiqued rather than just something that is normal and natural um, and, and is happening to them. So, um, so I do feel like, like that's a big part of the challenge that faces us is how to, you know, I have the privilege of being in a classroom and having access to, to students in that way. But, um, but I do feel like the, the lack of access to analysis that, that my students um, come into the university with is very widespread in society. Part of the challenge facing us activists is to how to broaden our access to larger sectors of the population. Thank you, Avi. Really, I mean, the, the need for broader access to, to, to deeper analysis and also this danger that as struggle intensifies for, for particular and in particular uh, sectors of the population, working class, first generation college students is one example. The danger that that the struggles, while still acute, kind of sh the, the horizon of struggle shrinks to like the individual level, that that isolation and fragmentation actually gets augmented and that the and, and the ability to imagine and, and participate in real collectivity um, in this actually gets harder, right? Under or feels like that way sometimes. I think these, this is a powerful tension, a, a real problem. I think we we all struggle with in one way or another, whether in our teaching or in organizing, um, how to get people to, to, to be able to imagine and, and believe in the possibility of a world different than the one them in the head. 
uh, even if they, you know, they might have objective interest in it and even subjective pain, but to actually fuse that suffering, that struggle to some kind of vision or some kind of sense uh, analysis and a sense that they're not alone, right? At the level and, and make that more than just rhetoric so that it really resonates. I mean, this is something I think about a lot in my own writing and my own teaching. Uh, I'm, I'm very interested to hear what others on this, uh, on this call uh, think about that. We're gonna go to Bobby Lee, Bobby Lee Smart uh, and, her, and her cat uh, for comment here. Uh, Bobby Lee, you're in a classroom. You, you, you just wrapped up teaching today, it sounds like, right? Uh, or this week. Um, yeah, you have to excuse my co-star here, but if I don't pet him, he'll just get worse. Um, so yeah, it's, I was out of thoughts. I'm trying to reorganize um, because what Avi said about the critical thinking skills or them, not even critical thinking, but being able to think outside of the box because They've been trained to just answer whatever they think you want to hear. Um, and they're not used to having to really get into things, but also they're not used to being able to get into things. No one's ever asked their opinion, their thought, right? What do you think when you read this? How does this make you feel? And so I, on being at a community college, again, mostly first-generation students, mostly working-class students, um, and I was first-generation myself, um, that they're like, wait, what? And I'm like, yeah, what do you think? When you hear this, what does it mean? And they're like, uh, well, what do you think? And I'm like, no, 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 I don't care what I think, right? And so um, those types of conversations, so always fall is always the worst semester for me, being your first semester in college and you're trying to teach them these skills. Spring is a little bit better, a little easier, um, but I think that that's a huge thing that I've noticed with them. And as far as like getting, like I said, they're already critical, ripping things apart. On TikTok, I don't understand TikTok. My students, are trying to teach me TikTok um, that old until I started trying to like understand what they were doing. But TikTok is super progressive. And my students, like this semester was the first time I gave them free reign in turning in assignments. How you answer the question, just tell me something you learned from this chapter every week. And I got so many TikTok videos and they were critical analysis. They were breaking things down. And one of them was about who was like all proud of her school and like studying marks and social analysis and then she's like and then i get on TikTok, and there's this gen zer breaking down harry potter as this capitalist scam convincing everybody that they need a wand when really they don't need wands to do but it's a way of them keeping power and i was just like and i'm laughing because that's the kind of stuff that they're watching like they get it in a way that we didn't and don't um, so I do think that, that they're seeing it and, and at the end of the video, the girl's like, so I'm just going to follow generation Z into battle with like juice boxes and oranges. And I was like, yeah, basically like we're the team parents now. Um, but really like they are on a different level of this and being accessible and yeah, so students and I, I'm that is different than most cause I let them talk. And so we get into things like. I let them just, what's going on in the world? And they, social analysis and this person, and did you hear, and they wanted to talk about WAP. If you don't, it is, um, it is a song by Cardi B and Megan The Stallion. And it stands for wet ass um, lady parts for lack of a better word. Um, and so, and they got into like this critical analysis of like female pleasure, but I was just like, like go for it. If you guys want to have that conversation, do it. Um, and so, so I let them have a lot more free reign. So I know that my classroom is also different than most. Um, Cause I'm, I'm also, that was not with my, my human sexuality class. So, you know, they're, you know, something different, but 
yeah, they're aware and they're paying attention. And I think that we need to give them credit. They're not as, you know, yeah, they're on their social media, but they're not just watching the Kardashians. They actually hate the scene. Um, they're actually a celebrity. So it's really not what the stereotypes are. Um, and then as far as the establishment, I'll jump to that question real quick. Um, so I'm a delegate for California. Um, and so it's really interesting because I'm far more progressive and know it. They know that I'm more progressive and I push things. And so it's kind of, it's been difficult because I am more progressive, but like, where do we go as progressives? Cause there's not like a double third party yet and there's not something to do. So I think that, um, what Demetria said about like teaching people how policy works, how you get your way, how to negotiate these spaces is super important. And I tell my students all of the time to bring it back to them, go, go to your local political club. You will be the youngest person by 30 or 40 years. Show up, D get involved. That's how I did it. I just showed up. I'm a kid from Anna, the Disneyland side. Um, and like, I'm, from a single parent household, working class background, and somehow I've gotten into this space and they let me in. And I get to make decisions, I get to meet policymakers and hold them accountable. I got to attack Julian, not physically, attack Julian Castro when he was running for president and be like, hey, so I'm an adjunct and what are you going to do for higher education? Because we're being exploited and it's undermining students and it's devaluing education. And they were like, what? What did you just say? Right? Like you get in those spaces to push your agenda. And so, um, you know, we talk about it as infiltrate and then conquer. So you got to get in to do what you want is an advantage to be, but there's also an advantage to being an insider when you can find a way to be as radical and progressive as I am and, and get the established listening to you and, and moving the party a little bit um, until there's a third option, right? Because right now there's, there's just not a viable third option right this second. Um, but I do think something is going to collapse, just like the Federalist Party went away in the end, like all of that. I think we're watching a shift. I just How long until the Democrats go the way of the Whigs? Maloney, um, uh, lots to step I defer to your own instincts and, and impulses, but we this intergenerational question is is been is being digested. This uh, this question of establishment inside outside. Um, I but but I defer to your to your uh, and after that we'll go to Ben and then we may have a piece of music to transition and then we'll welcome all of you who are on this call to to ask questions and make comments of your own. I know we have a lot of great great minds and experienced folks on this. Thanks, Joe. Um, yeah, a lot to wade in to here, and I, I don't, I'm just going to put a couple of thoughts out, and I haven't completely connected them yet. Uh, first, I, I was a high schooler. I, I taught at the university uh, before I became a labor leader. Um, I think working with students is just awesome. I love it. I miss it every day. What they teach me, uh, what they taught me. But I really struggle with um, with the ways we dis with the dangers of sort of dividing us in terms of what any of us bring to struggle. I I really think when we come together uh, to talk multiracial, multi generational, like it's an awesome experience when we really face each other and and we and we we. We deeply respect each other's dignity. 
and uh, and 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 arches. And so I'm I'm always like I I, I don't feel like you know I, I I feel like we get positioned like you're either for the kids or you're against the kids uh, in some way that just is 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 such a danger. Uh, it's it, the, the thing about the struggle that that uh, makes me so grateful that my life brought me to it is the ways that I. I come to see and know other human beings uh, in that space and in the particulars of their experience and the shared experiences that we have and the, and the knowledge that we bring, uh, the courage and the imagination. So uh, yeah, the kids are all right, uh, but, um, but we're all all right. And I think we have to be really careful about not letting uh, the, the system label us and divide us, even while, and Avi, I really appreciate your point, this generation has, is having a very particular experience that is not like the experience I had. Uh, uh, although the experience was an experience, you know, I grew up in the 70s, late 60s, 70s, I was like, got to be a part of a, a very exciting moment uh, in, in, our, in the world where things were changing. I got to be a part of a lot of activism, which by the way, because there was not a good analysis went the wrong way uh, in, in some ways. And then there are a lot of people who grew up in that moment who have been in the fight for a long time. Uh, so, I, so that's my complicated answer to that. Um, Joe, you know me, you know how I feel about electoral politics. Um, when I was president of the MTA, they gave me mass teachers I don't know how often I walked into that state house, but in four years, probably not this many times. Uh, I, I am learning from some of the uh, campaigns that I, and the positions that uh, people have taken and been able to win. Uh, I am very cautious. Here you, uh, Demetrius about like, like we learn in the struggle. And so wherever the struggle is, if we are engaging people in the struggle in a way that allows them to then name the structures of power and how they're working, like that is like wherever that's happening, it's important that that's what's happening. Uh, I worry about uh, the electoral political process because of the, what it suggests about power and about where power is and, and right, like, like the, the drug that is, if then just happens out there, then it will be better. And it's subtle, but it's like, where is the lesson that is, I am actually gonna do a thing today. And the thing I do today is gonna be the thing that matters, not the thing that I'm doing on November 3rd, because I'm going to vote, and I'm going to be alone when I vote. I'm going to be someplace separate. Uh, so I'm less dogmatic about that, mostly because I don't want to be an asshole in conversations anymore about it. Uh, but it's not where I put my energy. Yeah, Barbara, um, I mean, I think thinking like a critical Educator, as you approach struggles, I think it's it's such. I mean, I, I really love 
how you lay that out, right? And the kind of value of a struggle, partly it sounds like, in, as I take it from your comments, how it sh pre-shapes for people where power is, right? To, to, to what degree that the structure of the struggle lends itself to actually illuminating the realities of the power of the situation versus kind of obscuring it. And also the question of how we view ourselves in relationship to others. Transforming mutually and, and whether the question, and it's still a question, to what degree can that be found sometimes in electoral work? To what degree can that be found in workplace work? I'm sure some people's workplaces aren't particularly conducive to it as well. Um, but yeah, to think about that, that pedagogical question in relationship to the struggle, right? I mean, I, I think is, is just seemed to me very, very productive and very, very helpful. Ben, um, you're going to, when we go, before we go to music and then open things up even more than they're already open on this very open round table, you have a lot of experience studying and participating in movements both inside and outside of various forms of electoral politics. I'd love for you to step into that question, but again, it's uh, where you want to take it is up to you as we- Sure. I'm with Barbara on this, and I'll just say this. Um, there is uh, a lot of recent history, by which I mean the last 50 years, that has not been subjected to comparative analysis in terms of strategies for working within, working without. Some would say party electoralism is in, an insider strategy if you're engaged in underground revolutionary movements, which I was in the 90s, right? I mean, just doing, running elections, running candidates for office, winning local uh, seats and actually becoming embedded in governance. So the Greens have elected uh, well over uh, 1,500 people to office in the United States and had to deal with the problems of governance. Um, that hasn't been evaluated critically against the question of whether we've, what kinds of gains we've actually had. I mean, I remember Congressman Ron Dellums, Bob Kastenmeier, the whole cohort of DSA Congress people in the 80s, you know, so um, we um, do the work, follow the strategies and that we are uh, sort of committed to uh, in terms of our little approaches without allowing those electoral strategies to dictate our overall approach to movement building, to building alliances, because building those alliances, mobilizing together, finding ways, and you're going to hear my little boys there in the background, um, finding ways for uh, us to make use of our tactical and strategic differences. The fact that I have friends who are members of Congress, I have friends who are active in the Democratic Party, who are chairs of state parties. Uh, I'm glad they're there, right? And I want them to recognize the value of the networks and the successes that people that I'm more closely affiliated with that we bring. We have to we have to find the strengths in our in terms of our political diversity. Um, where my head's really at, to be honest with you, is with the next six months, and then six months after that. And we haven't really talked about the next six months. Um, we are going into a, a tough period, and you know it was said earlier. I'm actually have to step outside, but uh, uh, you know it was just uh, it was said that um, things can escalate very quickly, right? Sometimes it can escalate between a four-year-old and a six-year-old. I better go. But uh, but the mobilization, it's going to escalate quickly, and we have to intervene. So, All right. Thank you, Ben. We, we definitely understand first things first. Shelter and solidarity. We need to take take care of home base here, and, and then hopefully we'll have you back for 
for comment. Uh, so I think that's an appropriate moment as we think Ben is asking us to think a little more sharply about the, the next six months. Well, one thing that has, uh, I, I'm sure has been on your radar a um, couple of days, weeks has been the vaccine, vaccines uh, development and arrival. We have the first vaccine being administered at, here in the United States and, and many other countries around the world. A lot of questions raised around that. We actually have a song written and um, by uh, Tim Sheard, a co-producer of Shelter and Solidarity, and as part of his his new internet Zoom Zoom formed band, the Pandemics. This song is called Give Me Some Vaccine, and we'll use it as our transition to part two of Shelter and Solidarity. Enjoy. Give me some vaccine. I, am I still muted? No. Okay. Um, Was well, for a second there. That's give me some vaccine, but Tim Sheard and the pandemics. 
of course, uh, riffing off of the famous song, Give Me Some Love by the Spencer Davis Group. Uh, thanks, Ren Moody, our also co-producer for putting together those images for those who are, who are watching live, which I think raised a lot of questions about the vaccine. I mean, on the one hand, we have this, as Avi alluded to earlier, this great celebration of science, modern science's ability, and even these pharmaceutical companies and from government to produce this record setting vaccine in, in, in the shortest time ever. Um, but of course, already major concerns about distribution and access to them are being raised. Um, as some of those graphics indicated, uh, I was listening to Democracy Now! this morning, or, or the, this morning's broadcast anyway, and they're talking about some countries uh, estimating they won't get it till 2024, whereas other countries have bought so many put down offers on multiple types of vaccines, they may have three or five times the vaccine that they're, they actually need. Meanwhile, the low income countries, as they call them, the historically colonized and, uh, you know, oppressed countries of the world, um, you know, be, be lucky to get a dose, dosage uh, quantities that would allow them to serve 20% of their population in the, in the coming year. Like you can see great, you know, great breakthroughs and great progress on one level, but then uh, at the same time, great, 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 um, great barbarism kind of mixed up together. Um, you, right before you got called away, I see you're back. You were, you were about to launch us into a little bit of sharp, sharper thinking about the next six months. Um, and I want to go, if I may, go back to you briefly. We open it up to everyone who's on this call right now, including Mickey. Uh, we'll go to Mickey soon, as well as I, I know we haven't, Victor and Raymond haven't had a chance for a second comment. So I'd love to get their thoughts. But Ben, let's let you finish your, or at least develop your thoughts a little further there on, on what, how you. And I appreciate you doing that. Thank you. Um, you know, there are um, mobilization place all over the place uh, right now as uh, that, that I figurative that, you know, oftentimes we talk about prefigurative movement, prefiguring the future society, but the reality is that moves too, right? Um, for example, mobilizations around the country this past Saturday, not only of the proud, which got a lot of attention, uh, but also uh, DSA chapters mobilizing around a demand for, um, uh, you know, for not only a Green New Deal a stimulus, but essentially for a full rescue package to fight for our lives uh, in, in this next six month period. And they were relatively small. They were sort of a step and similar mobilizations are going on elsewhere. Um, I have my networks, my channels, organizations, and people I am more connected to and, and, and staying on top of, and I'm seeing a lot of ramping up there. And I am assuming that in our movement of movements that there are uh, things happening um, all over the place. Um, and I am expecting, I'll call it an art rather than a science. I mean, I am a sociologist, I am a social scientist, I think we can study movement scientifically, and I think we should. Um, but uh, there is definitely an art to it too, and you know the the art uh, for me says that um, you know that that we are going to be not giving uh, Harris administration a honeymoon, that they are going to face a lot of heat in the street, um, and it is partially because 
of what I was saying earlier that there has been, uh, uh, in, and this was picked up on, I think, by Raymond, you know, there has been this rhythm to these uh, sort of uh, sort of sub period that we've been living through over the last third uh, so that people learn some lessons right? and and with each round um, many of the lessons are passed on some of us are still living we try to pass on what lessons we can to folk in the fray um, and I think people have learned you can't give them a moment to breathe <laughs> a lot of people have learned that right um, and then the other thing is it's just necessity, you know, um, it's necessity. It's the economic necessity, the hardship that people are facing that so many of us are facing and that it's gonna, I think um, there's, you know, there's a sensibility of, of, uh, of sort of a, an imminent uh, sort of further crash or further collapse uh, in the coming weeks. Um, and so for me, you know, the, the, the social movement scholar who's the artist is I feel <laughs> that we're going into a very intense time of struggle. Um, and what, and, and then, you know, another part of my experience says to me that we, we've got to link up as much as possible. We need to compare notes. We need to find out not only sort of how we're understanding the problem, but also find out what resources we have collectively. And I guess this is what I'd said earlier about electoralism, but it, it speaks to how I see movements in general that that we have a lot more capacity and resources together than we know about most of the time, right? And when that capacity comes together, we get things that people call spontaneous, like the Wisconsin uprising or Seattle 1999 or Black Lives Matter and you know the strike waves of 2012 and 2000, you know, you know, so on. So my point is, uh, let's have that conversation as much as possible as rapidly as possible, um, because we're going to need those linkages and that knowledge. Thank you, Ben. I mean, one thing it's it's exciting to think about, um, almost overwhelming to think about in some ways, but I'd love to hear this group think on it together, is, um, you know, what, once it is safer, safe for critical masses of people to be together, or at least when people, you know, once the, the vaccine is widely available to, to at least within this country, and at least in certain regions and whatnot, um, you know, what what is that going to mean for uh, for people coming together uh, for for our for our social movements? I mean, you, you, you one would assume, or I mean, there, there's a lot of different ways it could go, right? I mean, I mean, one one way would be one pessimistic view would be that that nonetheless the social distancing, the fear of being close to other people, the stigmatization of that, you know, may in, in fact linger on even after the you know, the, uh, the vaccine is available. A view would be that people are gonna be itching to participate in, in, in all kinds of public protest actions that they've been afraid to. I know there were many people, right, who would have been out in the streets who weren't, right? As many as there, as even if, as there were millions out in the streets this summer, um, you know, despite the risks of seeing a greater risk in, 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 in systemic racism, police violence, uh, and other and other threats. So what do I mean? I'm very curious to hear what folks think about this. I mean, I'm not I mean, not just to go into idle speculation, but I mean, what are our senses of of how the next six months may play out uh, in terms of street action and in ter as well as in terms of uh, responses to whatever electoral program is being pushed by the uh, by the neoliberals in office. Uh, Raymond and Victor Nara, we haven't gone to you. Uh, yet. I'd love to get your comments in a moment, but Mickey, if you are, are ready to speak, I'd love to get Mickey. Uh, we have a, a really great um, 
guest uh, on the Zoom here, uh, Mickey, uh, first time on Children's Solidarity, I think. Please, uh, please share and introduce yourself if you could. Sure. Hi, this is a wonderful event. Um, I, I can't agree more with all the info everyone has shared and uh, hope everyone takes it to heart and uh, gets busy researching. Um, the only way we're going to get out of this is if everyone involved who wants to get out of this actually um, understands what they can do. Um, people don't realize there are things they can do that help um, move movements forward and can network. Um, I'm Mickey Metz, and I work with a web technology cooperative named Agaric. Um, we're based in Boston, Minneapolis, uh, Managua, Puebla, and uh, Hamburg, Germany. And we do a lot of connecting people with the tools that they need to help them stay secure, more secure and private. And uh, because we're, uh, when using the corporate tools, we become victim to that old thing back in the 60s that I happened to live through called Co-Help Pro. And it may seem like fantastical and something that's not going to happen to your movement, but... Um, since I work at a web tech uh, company, I do hear about networks and organizations being kicked off of platforms for being too progressive or discussing topics that, that aren't liked. Um, I recently did an interview on YouTube um, that it was about tech co-ops and about all the wonderful things we're doing that are pretty invisible to people by building platforms using free software platforms that are owned by us, the people, own this software, and you don't even know about it um, for most people. And it's a, a wonderful space to work in. I work at the intersection of tech co-ops, security and privacy, platform cooperatives, which a platform cooperative, uh, you could think of it as Uber, owned by the drivers. These are the economic chains and choices we need to make to get out of this. We can't be dependent on banks bailing us out. It doesn't work that way in this world. We bail banks out. So uh, I, I just think people need to take a look around them, what networks are in their neighborhoods and branch out from there. A network can usually connect you to another network like the E5 and Quant5 um, has a wonderful network of wonderful progressive thinkers they're able to put on great talks like this and roundtables. Um, we need to take that into our own selves and, and be willing to, to help support things like that, but not just support them, but getting the word out to people who wouldn't normally come to something you know, like this. They, they wouldn't know how to find it. Yeah, thank you, Mickey. And if you do have resources or web links you could share in the chat box for us, we'd love to be able to connect people who are at least in this live space on yes. Zoom here uh, yes. with I, the resources you're mentioning. I can post a bunch of links. I hope it's not an overload for people. I, I, <laughs> I'm sure we can handle a few. So, yeah, thank you. Well, at least anything to start us, you know, uh, one step at a time. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Uh, I'm cognizant of time that Avi Chomsky uh, has indicated she does need to step off in a moment. Avi, I wanted to give you a chance, if you'd like, even to say something, even if it's just good evening, uh, but um, to, to say something before you sign off. I know you're such a well of, of, of thoughts here. You've, you've shared some great ones. Before you go, and then we'll come back to Raymond and, and Victor. 
I mean, I guess um, one of my fears for the next six months or year is um, on one hand, how much of the mobilization, not activist mobilization, but perhaps sympathy for mobilization um, came from like for Trump and that once Trump is gone, there's gonna be this sort of collective sigh of relief among the liberals that now is the time to support the president and join together and have a happy country again. Um, and um, you know, now we can go back to normal. Um, so that that's one of my fears, and that that desire to go back to normal could also lead to a backlash against activism and mobilization. Um, so, yeah, I guess. Sorry to always be the pessimist here tonight. <laughs> No, I mean, um, but I'm guessing I, I feel like it. Uh, it's it's helpful to be thinking on all sides of the issue. It's 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 crucial to include that uh, that reality check as as well as we have the the more utopian you know desires and 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 uh, transformational visions. Uh, I mean, you know, I think we should we we meant this to reflect on 2020. And look ahead to 2021 in a sober way, although hopes and expectations and 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 our you know goals are also welcome. We will be doing a show in January. Our first show will be on hopes and expectations, socialist visions for 2021. Um, you know, trying to again have that dialectic, that dialogue of of the the harsh realities we face as well as uh, the the aspirations that 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 we that we we live to to see through. Avi, thank you for being here so much. I, I know you have to hop off, but I um, really value your your uh, your support for the show. You're 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 a regular now, so I uh, hope we'll be calling on you again in in uh, 2021. Although maybe we can get together in person uh, one of these days. So we'll not not in the not too distant future. Well, thank you so much, Joe um, and Saran, for having me on. It is great to meet all of you who I didn't know before. Um, and uh, and hear your voices here tonight. So thank you. I really appreciated listening to everyone. All too. right. Take care, Avi, uh, professor at Salem State University on the North Shore of Massachusetts, and uh, author of, of a great great number of books, and one coming out on global on climate change. Um, all right. Uh, let's go back to Raymond. Raymond, we haven't heard from you in a while, um, and uh, I'd love to get Victor Naro after that, and then maybe we could welcome Victor Wallace and others who are on this call right now who haven't spoken or not spoken in a while. Uh, Raymond, uh, what do you think? Yeah, there are a couple of things I wanted to comment on. Um, I think it's important to for me to curl back to the uh, intergenerational question because uh, um, if you look at each country or each society, uh, it has its very particular characteristics. And in this country, like for example, um, time in Ghana my, and my son built a library over in Ghana. And one of the things I found in, in society and other African societies and uh, perhaps in societies as well, there's this um, uh, 
elevation of elders and, and respect for elders. And we're in this society, it's quite the opposite for the most part. This is a big generalization as with any generalization, you know, there's, it's fraught with danger. But um, I remember, I recall growing up where there was a slogan, don't trust anyone over 30, which is absurd if you think about it. You know, um, you need, I think um, it's so important, like say, for example, the communist movement, the socialist movement that was out of the struggles of the 60s, had it been informed, really weighted, you know, very heavily, the uh, elders that were struggling in during the 30s, I think it would have gotten further along in some ways. That's my opinion, you know, in terms of uh, forms of organization, methods of struggle and so forth. The people that the survivors that were left, if they had been able to uh, inform the young people that came forth during the 60s and 70s, I believe, um, you know, uh, the movement advanced in a different way. Um, and then I'm, I'm a little, uh, you know, there's this hermeneutics of suspicion around, you know, youth or black leadership or women's leadership. I think it's, it's basically about the kind of politics that people bring, you know, because just because a person is young, uh, if they step to the forefront and their politics are inadequate or even um, worse than that, or an African-American or, or gay and transgender, lesbian, whatever, uh, I'm concerned that cut it, you know, there has to be this um, evaluation and assessment uh, based on. Now, in general, you know, of course, we, the younger people were out there objectively. They were objectively out there spearheading the fight. So anyway, I, that's, that's what I wanted to say. And then finally, um, back to Ben's point about uh, what he, he was talking about six months, I will go into the corporate media's uh, Piccadilly, the, the love for the first 100 days I call it the first 100 D-A-Z-E, uh, is, is that the first police murder that occurs and goes viral, and which it will, it, you know, capitalism can't help itself. There will be a, a police murder, and then you will see Lady Blue, and I call him Schmo Biden, uh, you know, they will drill down and... You can't, I don't know if you can go back to beer in the road garden twice. You can't, I don't know if you can do that, redo that. But I think that's going to really set things off. I believe that firmly. And so you heard it here. So anyway, that's my comment. Thank you, Raymond. And I, I look forward to seeing that and hearing that in poetic form. But, uh, you know, those those riffs, uh, that, that hypo hypothesis 
she just uh, really, really thoughtful. I want to say we have to say goodbye to Demetrius. We're about to lose D. Uh, Demetrius, thank you for being here. I know we're going to wrap up shortly. Maybe just a couple of closing comments here. Uh, we are past 8.30, uh, which was the comments. Uh, but D Demetrius, thank you for being here. Um, next time, see you in 2021. Um, I wanted to go to Victor, I guess, which would be the last person who has not spoken twice on our, our yeah. table. Just a, and then we'll, we'll, we'll move towards wrapping up. I know. You know I, I, um, yeah. So I'll make my comments very quick, quick and brief. Um, you know, um, I, I do a lot of, uh, a lot of my work is healing justice, spiritual healing justice. This is a core group of us. We, we get together, we have our own network, but we try to find healing in this work. And, you know, I, I teach a class at UCLA on the joy of activism with students figure out what does that mean and they learn the whole class how you know like great spiritualists like uh, Desmond Tutu and the Dalai Lama and others said they teach us like daily it's a daily work for justice and you know every morning I wake up if I open my eyes and wake up I have the joy that knowing that I have a whole day to do this work and I think um, you know there is joy in the worst moments and there is joy in a crisis and I think the solidarity I'm witnessing, like I'm feeling like the deep, we're reinventing solidarity and interconnectedness. Like, I think coming out of this pandemic, we're gonna have probably the most deeply rooted form of solidarity and interconnectedness that we've ever had. That's something for me to be joyful about. So I think, you know, uh, as we embrace the uncertainty, the struggles, the anguish, the despair, the struggles that people are going through, that we're also going through. Um, each one of us here, you know, the, the fact that we can come together and, and engage in a work for justice, I just find that there's a sense of joyfulness in that. So that's my parting comments. Thank you, Victor, so much for that. I mean, this pandemic has forced us all, though not in equal ways, but nonetheless has forced us all to confront our mortality, the mortality of those around us, uh, it, it, I think we are going to be uh, in, a, in a new place coming out of it as well. I mean, I feel many of us are already in a new place in terms of the way we, we look at each other. And I think there's great potential uh, for, for joyous, passionate connection and, and the re positive release of that energy in, in, in really productive and transformative forms. I, you, you inspire me, Victor, and, uh, and thank you for that very important note. I think we need that as well. We need the joy in the struggle, right? It's not necessarily joy separate from the struggle, the joy in the struggle as well. We have another terrific Victor on this call uh, who's also been a guest of Shelter and Solidarity but has not spoken tonight. I wanna give him what might be the final word, not seeing anything else, any hands uh, uh, screaming in the chat box. Victor Wallace, uh, comrade and friend from Boston who I have not seen in person for a long time despite being in the same city or at least uh, next to your city in Somerville. Victor, what would you leave us with tonight? <clears throat> Thank you, Joe. This has been a great conversation. Uh, it, just in thinking about uh, the, the year, uh, the, the thing that, that struck me uh, especially is that um, un, unlike the period after uh, Obama was elected, there's absolutely a universal sense on the left uh, that we can't sit back. I mean, I mean that is overwhelming. Everybody's aware of the limitations of the corporate connections of Biden, the, 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 the hype that surrounded Obama uh, involving hopes for great change. Uh, 
and that they even talked back then about a new deal, which uh, was completely forgotten. Uh, there's none of that now. We're, we're all aware that it that all we did by uh, contributing to the extent that we did or uh, uh, to the election of Biden was really to buy time, uh, to buy time because the crisis that produced uh, Trump is, is worsening and his shock troops are still, are still active. Uh, they'll come out, I mean, to talk about a concrete instance that we know is gonna happen, there's gonna be uh, the court case involving the cop who murdered George Floyd. That's gonna come up. That's gonna be a, a tremendous uh, moment of um, really uh, mobilization, I think it'll, it'll have to be. Uh, and I, I think that also the, the, the pandemic has created an opportunity for us to talk about uh, emergency and just to transfer that idea uh, to the question of, of the environment so that everybody should be able to treat the environmental crisis as having the same level of urgency uh, that the COVID crisis has now. And so that'll be a, a focus for discussion. And with the sense of emergency and with the recognition that, uh, that Biden is not gonna provide uh, any, any solutions, we have a moment of terrific reflection and opportunity for different left forces to interact with the hope of coming out with, with a whole that's greater than the sum of the parts. And this was one thing I was thinking of also in terms of this, uh, this program itself, the Shelter and Solidarity, among others, the, the, there need to be a lot of communities in which there's a discussion of all the different approaches and including different organizations that exist on the left and how they can somehow uh, create a, a larger unity that we can have going forward. Thank you for that, Thank Victor. You. I think, I mean, even as we've been so, many of us, uh, the production team you'll hear me thanking in a moment have been deeply involved in this project on top of all of our other work, Shelter and Solidarity. We're cognizant that there, there are dozens, hundreds, perhaps thousands of other small collectives uh, and projects that in a similar spirit, if not the same approach that, that have been have grown up all over the country and all over the world. Uh, how can we move towards synthesizing the lessons and 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 sharing the lessons and and the best methods and and the networks so that this on this largely online kind of community of communities network of networks as Seren sometimes puts it uh, or movement of movements, um, you know can can in fact continue in, into the you know in real life after the after the Zoom days are hopefully if not behind us, then at least diminished. Um, I think that's a great note to, to, to end on and one for us to reflect on in this show too, in conversation with other such programs and shows. I know Labor Notes, Barbara Mataloni and Labor Notes have been doing series of conversations. I'd love to hear the, you know, the synthesis of, maybe we could, we could share some notes sometime uh, with that project, project and, and other projects uh, that y'all are involved with. I know there's a lot of them and I know that we're exhausted at the end of this long year so i thank all extra thanks for being here to in form in energy with your joy your passion and your insight uh i want to thank especially also the production team that makes shelter and solidarity happen this being our 30th episode top of all full-time work and the and the organizing that we've done we've had i believe we've had close to 100 guests and we've had thousands of people participate in the show we do have a YouTube channel. We, if you have not subscribed to and have not sent on to your, your networks, you can find that at YouTube, Shelter and Solidarity. We also have a website, shelterandsolidarity.org, where, where, where all of our episodes are archived. 
uh, and we have a Facebook page, of course, as well. Uh, we're not on TikTok yet, but perhaps we should be, Bobby Lee. We got to get got to get real as we go into 2021. This this time it's for keeps. Um, production team: Linda Liu, Seren Mudliar, Kira Mudliar, Tim Sheard, Mark Soderstrom. Uh, thank you for all the work you've done, not only today's show but this whole year. Uh, thank you to our co-sponsors, uh, which includes uh, Encuentro Cinco, a hub for organizing in downtown Boston, uh, the journal Socialism and Democracy, a research journal for social justice and transformative activists. Subscribe, check us out at sdonline.org. We've got a couple of new great issues. Ben Mansky actually helped, I believe, to co-edit one of them, which is coming out any day now. Um, so uh, Community Church of Boston, our newest co-sponsor, as well as Hardball Press, a publisher of working class stories and progressive children's literature. You may be thinking about gifts to send your, you know, the, the, the young ones in your life, the your children, nieces, nephews, cousins. Uh, I've heard there's a great, a great labor children's book called Good Guy Jake. I won't give away the plot, but it's amazing based on a true story. Check out um, hardball press support these small projects small presses and small uh, newspapers are under threat more than ever in this covid era when people are afraid to pick up a newspaper um, please do support each other and uh, we, we we thank you for supporting us in all the ways that you have we're going to come back in 2021 in a stronger than ever uh, stronger than ever and uh, we hope that you'll be there with us as we we continue this online work and also think about how we can move this network we've created into other forms beyond this show in this year full of possibilities as well as dangers. As we always say on Shelter and Solidarity, stay safe, stay engaged, and stay together. Solidarity, folks. Have a great night.